Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. You assert yourself. This is right. This is wrong. It's inside the law. I can get away with it. It's by might. Might makes right. And therefore, all of a sudden, the Western world, for hundreds of years now, we do not look up. We primarily look within. It's inbred in our educational process. And then you ask someone, even who is a Christian, and ask them, what does a healthy family look like? What are the traits and the characteristics of a healthy family, of a healthy marriage? The truth is there's one key to building a healthy family. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young shares the message, The Secret to a Healthy Family, with proven truth from God's Word to help you create a home that's filled with peace and joy. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, The Secret to a Healthy Family. You know it's possible to go to church, wonderful time of prayer and celebration together and not worship. We can go and be lifted up and inspired, but yet somehow not understand and not receive the word what God has for us. We say the victory is ours. It is in Jesus Christ, but yet there are steps between here and complete victory of heaven. And it's those steps we need to make sure we nail down in biblical truth. So let's prepare for the teaching of the Word together. Father, today is a day of memories of our land, of America, of the price that has been paid in the shed blood of thousands upon thousands of men and women who have died so that we might have a nation under God a republic with democratic principles involved. And Lord, we know a great price has been paid, but we know it must continually be paid by us right where we are. So this place will continue to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. Bring us off the bench and put us in the game of reaching America and then the world for Christ, how we need to go back to the rock from which we were hewn. Lord, now we're here to do business with you. You speak, let me get out of the way, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you missed the article about Duke University. It costs over $56,000 a year to attend Duke. That includes room and board and tuition. But they made an announcement this week. The announcement was that tuition will go up, fees for kids next year, in order to provide sex change operation for students that desire it. And the debate was not concerning the morality of a sex change. The debate was over the increased fee. 
And it was pointed out that this is 0.3% of what they pay, about $150 or $60 more per student. And when you're paying $56,000, they said, what's another $150 in order to provide students with the ability to have their gender changed? And that was a debate, not over the morality, not over the idea that, you know, God made a mistake and he, he meant to create Joan, but he created John, and therefore we're going to correct God's error. You read about that, and you shake your head and ask the question we've been asking in recent days. What has happened to America? I thought kids went to school to get an education. I must have missed something somewhere. What's happened to America? What is happening to America? We dealt with that in our study. We went back in history and saw that from the first century forward that all the Western world basically looked up to get their morals and their values. They looked to God. They looked out into the transcendent world and said the transcendent world gives us objective values that are written down in the book and then philosophers said, you still have objective truth that comes through the laws of nature. And therefore, for hundreds of years, there was no real debate, though the world didn't adhere to it, but there was no real debate about basically what was right and what was wrong. But then we come to the 18th century, and that was the Enlightenment, which actually began to lead all the Western world into an era of increasing darkness. Because we looked at those three philosophers that brought us rationalism, romanticism, and perfectionism, and the idea that now you no longer look up to get truth and values and absolutes, now you look within. And we looked at Immanuel Kant. He says, you look to your mind. A lot of people do that today in the 21st century, do they not? Is that right? Is that wrong? I'll think about it. I'll figure it out. I'll use my brain, and therefore, I'll come to the right moral decision. We look to our mind. We look within. We don't look up. Then another philosopher came along, and Rousseau said, no, you don't look up to get values. You don't look at your mind. You look at your heart. You look at your emotions. You say, if it feels all right, it certainly must be all right. Isn't that how, you know, you, it, 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 it feels so good and this, it must be okay. So we look at their emotions. And then along came Nietzsche and Nietzsche says, oh no, you don't look up because there's no God up there. And for a long time, for several months, there were those headlines back there that said God is dead. Somebody asked Billy Graham about it. He says, you know, I didn't know that. I talked to him this morning. <laughs> said, God is dead, and therefore you get your values by power, by might. You assert yourself. This is right. This is wrong. It's inside the law. I can get away with it. It's by might. Might makes right. And therefore, all of a sudden, the Western world for hundreds of years now falling. We do not look up. We primarily look within. We follow these rationalistic philosophers. So much of our culture, it's, 
inbred in our educational process. We moved through the 60s and the 70s, and now we're awake in the 21st century. Look around and said, what in the world is happening? And then you ask someone, even who is a Christian, and ask them, what does a healthy family look like? So, you know, I'm not sure. What are the traits and the characteristics of a healthy family, of a healthy marriage? You say, well, I'm not, I'm not clear on that. A secular author by the name of Dolores Curran has written a book, Traits of a Healthy Family, and here's the list that she gave us. Look at it on your screens there. There's a list. You see them there? She lists 15 of them. Communicates, listens, affirms, and supports. Number 12, values service to others shares, leisure time, and all the way through to 15 different characteristics of a healthy family. And we could read over all of those, and I would ask you the question, as you read over these, you won't have time to do it now, was this particular characteristic trait of a healthy family a part of the family that you were brought up in? And we'd read it and say, well, this one, didn't get this one, we didn't have this one. Then I'd ask the question, are these traits, do they describe the family that you're now engaged in? And we'd go through and say, well, I made a F on this one and a B minus on this one. And we'd go through and grade ourselves and say, you know, some of these and some do not. But this is totally secular. Now, I looked at these and I said, you know, I think she's forgotten a couple at least and there are others. One would be boundaries. And so I added boundaries. See there at the bottom? A healthy family has boundaries that they operate inside of. Then I said, well, if you have boundaries, you better have discipline. So I added discipline, appropriate discipline to time and age and situation and offense. Discipline. If we cross the boundaries, there has to be discipline in a healthy family. Then I said, if this is a healthy family, these characteristics are fine, but the whole family, these traits must be surrounded by irrational love. So I put irrational love around all of it. And what is irrational love? How do we look at love that's out of sight, love that's inexplicable, love that's beyond anything we can imagine? Where does that come from? It's the kind of love we receive in the love of God has for you and me. That's irrational love. We, we've deceived him. We've broken promises. We're hypocritical. We've struck out. We've lied. We've stolen. We've lust. We've gone back. And, and so, but God just keeps on loving us with an irrationality that's out of this world. That's supernatural, doesn't he? It's amazing how he puts up with you and how he puts up with me. Irrational love. And that's from Christ. So therefore, we see our list. We bow off on our list, and I think you expect me to stand up and say, all right, you want a healthy family, a healthy marriage, here's the list, where are you failing? Try harder. Isn't that what you expect? That's not what you're going to get. Because if you've been around for a while, we never get there by trying harder. Have you noticed that? Huh? To write down our New Year's resolutions, I've got a perfect score on all of my New Year's resolutions. I've failed every single time. <laughs> so, we just throw up our hands and say, you know, what's the use? 
You know, we, we can't improve. We're locked in here. We're surrounded by the irrational love of God. But I want to go back and let us look at to how we can indeed have a healthy family. We have to go back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. Look at Genesis. You, you gentlemen can find that. It's the first book in the Bible. Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1 in Genesis for just discussion and understanding is basically tells us what God did in creation. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is a commentary basically on chapter 1, which illustrates and tells us something of the purpose that was behind God's creation and how it all began to transpire. So chapter 1, this is what God did in creation. It's good, 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 it's very good. Then he said, it's not good for man to be alone, the first not good in the Bible. And you move to chapter 2 as a commentary. And then you have a picture in chapter 2 of the pre-apple garden. Now, don't write me and say, the Bible doesn't say it's an apple. I know that. It's a fruit, but we're going to use the apple, okay? That's all right. The pre-apple garden. What's it like? Oh, listen. Look at verse 22, chapter 2. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him. By the way, remember, brought her to him. That's a picture in weddings when the father brings the bride to the altar to give to the groom. That is God bringing Eve to Adam. That's all presupposed here, all taught here. Then verse 22, the man said, now, God, you have provided with me a slave to meet all my needs and to be at my beck and call 24-7 and to do everything I want to do and to be totally bowed before me at all times. No. What does it say? When Adam saw Eve, he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this verse 24, for this reason shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh that the man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. How beautiful that is. In the pristine garden of Eden, pre-apple, Adam and Eve became one, and they were mutually in charge. They were mutually superintendent. They were the ruler. They had supremacy, and they reflected together the image of God. And in their love and their two becoming one, they reflected God's perfect image in that garden what a magnificent thing we can't even imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, either has entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. They love God. God loved them. They had the whole universe under their control. What a magnificent, pristine world of love and freedom and spontaneity and creativity and joy and celebration and worship and praise. God met with him daily, continuously. What a moment in history. Now you have mutuality. You have mutual supremacy over all of creation. And intimacy. 
two become one. No shame. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Pre-apple. Now the fall. Oh, the fall. That decisive moment in history of civilization and the creation when something unbelievably tragic took place, the fall of mankind, and we read about it with words that are hard to believe. Verse 6, chapter number 3, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, the woman saw the tree was good for food. God said, you can eat of all the trees, don't eat of this tree. The woman saw it was good for food. Oh, it was good for food. She figured that out in her mind, didn't she? She looked to her mind. Oh, me, have we run into Kant again in Genesis? She decided it was good for food. She used her head. She used her common sense. That tree's okay. It's good for food. She lost her mind. Then she, she saw there was a delight to her eyes. Delightful. Oh, emotion, passion, the heart. Man, we're back with Rousseau again. Man, she saw it delighted her eyes. Ooh, ooh. Emotion must be all right because it'll taste good and it'll feel good. Okay, that's that. I will make my decision about right and wrong on that basis. And look at the next thing. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Oh, wisdom is power. Oh, I'll be wise. I'll be controlled. What happened in the fall here? What happened? It is Adam and Eve decided that we're tired of being Dependent on God, we want to be independent from God. We don't want to be subject to what God wants. We want to run our own show and run our own lives. And that's the same guys that Satan uses to bring you down and to bring me down. Satan has no new game plans, ladies and gentlemen, because it keeps on working every time with human beings. Exactly in the garden, you go all the way to 1 John chapter number 2, what is the deal? The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the same thing. Man, use your mind to decide what's right and wrong. Use your feelings to decide what's right and wrong. Boy, if you're powerful enough to do it, you can do it. Same play, same game plan over and over and over again. You can trace it through history in the Bible and the history of your life and my life. The fall of man. The fall of man. And now everything changed. Everything changed. And now we have the curse that is placed. The penalty on God backing up from man as man backed up from God and man declared his independence instead of being dependent. And look at the curse. We see this in chapter number 3, verse number 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In the path, you will bring forth children. In the, in the pain, you will bring forth children. This is it. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There's the curse. Your desire will be for your husband. That's the curse on the woman. And by the way, the word desire here is the same word found in the very next chapter. In the seventh verse, it says, God says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and sin desires you. The word sin desires to control you. And the idea of the woman 
And desire is not related to a sexual thing. It's the idea here, the curse is, the woman wants to control things. The woman wants to control the relationship. And then in the next verse, the curse on the man is the man wants to rule over the woman. So you have both of them wanted to be in charge. That's the curse that came upon us. And by the way, we don't have to live under that curse. But a lot of us do. Genesis 3.16 tells us the curse we're under in declaring our independence and saying, I want to be in charge. Oh, I want to be in charge. The answer for the curse is John 3.16. Genesis 3.16 is following the fall and the curse is placed there. Ah, but the answer is John 3.16. But even when we come to Christ individually, still a lot of marriages and a lot of families operate on the auspices of the curse. I found a wonderful little acrostic about the curse in a little book. I want you to look at this acrostic. The desire for rule over one another. The man wants to rule over the woman. The woman wants to rule over the man. And therefore, a lot of Christian marriages still operate under the curse. Let's check it out to see about your marriage and mine. The C is for controlling. We try to control one another and how we are skillful at that. How, how do we try to control? Some try to control by manipulation. Others try to control by declaring and being absolute. I can't tell you how many wives have come to me and said, oh, pastor, my, my husband won't go to church with me and he used to go and, and he's not loving me the way Christ loved the church. And she'll quote all the wife verses to me to get at his pastor or husband so she can control him. Oh, yeah, that's what it's about, ladies. And then I can't tell you how many hundreds of men have come. I'll tell you, pastor, talk to my wife. She won't submit herself to me. See, they're husband verses and wife verses. The wife comes with her verses, the husband comes. And both of them, the bottom line is, they're trying to control their mate. Oh, yeah, that's the curse, controlling. Look, I could spend a week on that. You, uh, 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 unforgiving. We don't forgive because, man, we have that little ace in our pocket we can pull out any time. I'm telling you this, you remember when and what and how. And we don't forgive. We just kind of keep that back. Oh, we may say, oh, I forgive you, but we don't. We hold it back. You're living under the curse. Uh, look how we respond. Look, look how we react. You ever walk around on tiptoes with your wife, your husband? Ooh, man, if I say this, she's going, <laughs> we react. You're under the curse. You're under the curse. And look at the S up here, shaming. Oh, I'm just so embarrassed about you, what you did, how you looked. Oh, oh, we just all trying to get on top and run the show. That's what it's all about. This is a curseful, curseful family, a curseful marriage. Then ego-driven. You know, the important thing is performance. How do, how do we look on the outside? How, how do things happen? You see, prior to the fall, we know the little triangle there. You have God on top, Adam and Eve on the bottom, right? That's prior to the fall. Adam on top, Adam and Eve on the bottom. But then following that, it is reversed. All of a sudden, Adam and Eve on top and God is on the bottom. You see it? And there you have shame and blame game come in. You remember? God goes and says, 
Adam, how'd you eat that apple? I told you not to eat that apple. Adam said, oh, it wasn't me. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's the woman you gave me. I, wouldn't have, I never would have eaten that apple if you hadn't brought that woman in my life. <laughs> and, and goes to Eve and said, Eve, why'd you eat the apple? He said, my goodness, I was fleeced by that snake that you created, God. I would never have disobeyed you, but that snake came just beautifully shining, slivering up there and brought me all those tempting words, and I just couldn't resist. He's smarter than I am. It's a snake. We're all good at this, are we not? Man, I didn't do it. It's my wife's problem. It's my children. It's where I live. It's geography. It's my employer. It's my neighbors. It's other things. It's this addiction that I, we just can explain away everything and blame somebody else. Who was Adam and Eve really blaming? They were blaming God. It's God, you gave me this woman. God, you brought this snake. God, you made me vulnerable. Shame, blame game. That takes place in a marriage under the curse. Then we have to ask the question, well, how in the world do we get out from under this curse? And the curse is so subtle. Let, let me give you a little simple illustration to show how we manipulate one another in marriage under the curse. Here's a husband and wife, and man, and they, they, they got married on the basis that he looked full to her, had a full life. But in the middle of his life, he was empty. He was really a, a, a lifesaver, you know, sweet on the outside, empty on the inside. And, and, and she looked over at him, and they saw the other. He looked full. She looked full. They were both empty. And she said, I marry him. He will fill me up. And he said, I'll marry her, and she will fill me up. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing will fill that emptiness in you. Your wife won't, your husband won't, your children won't, your vocation won't, life won't, a hobby won't. Nothing fills that empty spot. No human being, nothing can do it except one thing. We'll get to that in a minute. And so this is what happened. Now, let's move ahead. Look what happened to children that appear. Look at children. Here's, here, here's a young man that's empty on the inside. Something's not there but he's surrounded by positive peer pressure. Man, he makes good grades at school. He's respectful to his mom and dad. He has good friends. You know, he doesn't do drugs. Uh, he's very polite. You say, boy, what a fine young Christian man you're bringing up in your family, but he's empty inside. And here's this same man goes off to college, goes off the military, goes off to a vocational school, and he's still empty inside. Now he has negative pressure. Man, we all sleep around. Man, you mean you don't do drugs? Man, here's a copy of the test. All of a sudden, there's negative pressure. We say, oh, my goodness, my son, he's just gone off the deep end. It's the same guy. It's a matter of pressure. The problem was emptiness on the inside. In all probability, it came from a mama and a daddy who was empty as well, though they said, we're Christians. So how do we reverse the curse and move from a curseful relationship in marriage to a spiritful relationship in marriage. We go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I have taught this and heard this in so many, many ways. Let me say something up front. Most of the time, Ephesians 5 is taught like this. Follow me. Ephesians 5 said, here is God's chain of command. 
And here's the husband, and the wife is to be submissive to the husband. He runs a home. That's how it's taught. Then the next channel is, well, here's the parents, and the children are to be submissive to the parents. They run the home. In our vocabulary, instead of slave and servant, it'd be here's an employer, and the employees are to be submissive to the employer. That's how we've heard Ephesians 5 taught most every time. I can tell you there's nothing wrong with that except it's not biblically true. That's how the Ephesians operate anyway. How did the pagan culture operate? Man, the father is in charge of the wife. He could just throw her out, get rid of her, marry somebody else. Man, that's how the pagan culture operated, didn't it? That's nothing new if, if that's what Paul is teaching. There's nothing new that parents are over their children and their children are to be subject to them. Well, that's what they taught. If you didn't want a little girl, just throw her away. Mad at the boy, just kick him out, kill him. Total life or death over children. That was the pagan culture. Nothing new about that. Employer, employees, slave owner, slaves, nothing new about that. So what is Paul saying? If he's not setting up some kind of dogmatic chain of command, what is he saying? And the key verse is found here. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Stay with me. This is rich territory. Enough said. Verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, somebody said, well, being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk. No, it's the very opposite of being drunk. When you're drunk, you don't hear very well. You certainly don't see very well. You can't speak very well. And you certainly don't have compassion over anybody else. That's being drunk. Being filled with the Spirit, you've got new ears. You've got new eyes. You've got a new tongue. And you've got new compassion over everybody else. It's totally different. He says, don't be drunk like you used to be. He said, be filled. And you're brand new. And by the way, be filled is a command. And it, it's a command, of the, it means continually keep on being filled, but is in the, the passive voice. It means you don't command, I, fill me, Lord. It's not something you do. It's not something really you request be done. You make yourself as a Christian available to be filled. That's how it happens. I am available to be filled by the Holy Spirit. I don't command it. There's nothing I can do to get it. I'm just available as a son and daughter of God. It's availability to be filled by the Holy Spirit. See, that's different. Filled by the Holy Spirit. And it's like wind is filling a sail. When, when a sailboat is tracking, some of you know, you go sort of diagonal with the wind or even against the wind. And what happens? The wind fills the sail and it fills a vacuum behind the sail. And the wind doesn't compel the sail, push it forward. It's the vacuum on the other side of the sail that is empty that leads it forward. See, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, little high school physics. God must have known physics. Isn't that amazing? So the Holy Spirit doesn't drive us so much as it, it, le it leads us. And then the characteristics of the Spirit-filled life, speaking. You say, well, I'm Spirit-filled. I've got to speak. Oh, no. It's a byproduct of being full of, full of the Holy Spirit, full of Christ, full of God, see? I'm speaking. I'm gregarious. And they're singing. 
And that's, that's what we want. We want our homes to sing. We want our marriages to sing. Maybe not just musically, but to have a rhythm and, and a purpose and a rhyme and a joy and a freedom and a light in it. We want, we, we're singing now. The Spirit gives us ability. It's just a natural. We can't help but sing and, and work things out together. Then there's thanking. There's gratitude. I like to be around people who are grateful. I'm thankful for this. I'm thrilled with this. I I thank God for that. I'm privileged to be your friend. I love being around people. An attitude of gratitude is a distinguishing mark of a Christian. And then finally, look at this verse. Here's our verse we've been trying to get to all the time. Look at verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear, in the worship, in the reverence of God. In other words, it says we are to be mutually submissive to one another. And to be subject means to position yourself under. Listen carefully. To be subject means to position yourself under. And then you have the very next verse. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. You notice in your Bible, the word subject is in italics. It's kind of written different. Do you see that? Look at your Bible. You know what that means? It's not there in the original. It's not there. It was added. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Look how it would be translated. It said, wives, be to your own husbands as to the Lord. I've married a lot of couples. Well, well, you're going to put that part in there about the wives being submissive, pastor? It's not in the book. Not in the book. It says, wives as unto the Lord. Before you run off and say, he don't know what he's talking about, stay with me. I'm going to show you something else. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husband loves your wife as Christ loved the church. Now watch this. This is important. The verse says, be subject one to another, right? You get that verse? In other words, we're to position ourselves under one another. Okay? Then it says, wives as unto the Lord. And really, it would say, husbands as unto the Lord. Now, I want to ask you something. How did you get under the authority of Jesus Christ? How'd you get there? Did Jesus come and say, I'm taking authority over your life. I am your Savior and your Lord. Uh, Didn't happen that way, did it? How did you and I become subject to the Lord? It's when we bent the knee, and it's when we placed ourselves under him as our Lord and our Savior. How did the Lord reach a place where we placed ourselves under him? Did he come out of heaven and God say, this is my beloved son, you bow and scrape to him. He is in charge. He is the ruler of the universe. What did he do? No, God in Christ came and placed himself with us under us, took our sin upon himself, died for us. Jesus came under us, and he made such statements as the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Who ever heard of such a thing? If you lose your life, you'll find your life. Man, that's crazy thinking. Somebody asks you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What kind of deal? How did Jesus come to a position of lordship over the church? 
he placed himself under by the giving of his own life and his blood. Mm. So what does this say about the relationship with a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband? How is leadership there? It is when we, full of the Holy Spirit, and, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we're available to him. By the way, it's incorrect to say, there goes the man, the spirit-filled. Oh, no. See, we're spirit-filled now. We're spirit-filled now. We're spirit-filled now. It's present. It's ongoing. And when we're full of the Holy Spirit, then we're able to place ourselves under our husband and place ourselves under our mate. And by the way, to place ourselves under our children. It doesn't say, parents say, all right, here's the, the Bible says, children, obey your parents. Oh, no, 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 no. Parents place themselves under their children, too, is the way they get their authority and leadership. So how does this work? What gives any parent authority over children is that you love more than your child does. And what is the beginning of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is humility. If your child has more love and more humility than you do, you need to place yourself under your child and just sit there. Oh, he's rebellious. Doesn't matter. Just place there and just listen because your child may have more of godliness than you do. Unless we have the faith of a child, the humility of the child, the purity of a child. So parents have to get under their children to this extent and be humble enough to see and discern how God has bent their life We'll deal with this next time. I'll talk about two positives and two negatives that parents have to operate in bringing up their children. That's next time, commercial. <laughs> but you see, the greatest thing, the wisest thing anybody can do is to be humble. That's the wisest thing any of us can do. And we have to be humble enough even to get under our children. Now, look what happens when a wife gets under her husband and a husband gets under the wife. There's this whole attitude of submission and submissive. I want you to see what happens. Look at your screen, and I want you to nail down these words. This is what happens, first of all. Look at it. When the wife places herself under her husband and puts to his service everything about her that is female, to enable her husband to become everything God created him to be. Now, watch this. That's, that's not double talk. Stay with me. I want you to forget everything, but remember this. When a wife places herself under her husband, submissive, subjected to him, and gives to her husband everything that is female about her, not just physical, everything men need everything that's female, to be in service to their life. Then look what happens. Then the man is enabled to become everything God wants him to be. Now, flip it over. When the husband places himself under the wife, look at it, and puts to her service everything about himself that a male is. In other words, here is a husband who places himself under his wife and gives to his wife everything that is male about him. Wives need that male ingredient in their lives. Then what happens? Look at the rest of it. Then his wife becomes everything God intended for her to be. This is revolutionary, ladies and gentlemen. You see, what happens then? We give a chance for God to change your husband and change your wife 
when we put themselves under them and there is love there and there is a fullness of the Spirit there that we're available for him to fill and change the curse that is operated even in homes that are inhabited by two Christians and all of a sudden there is a spiritful home. And let me tell you, that home is electric. God does the changing. And then all of a sudden, the inside of our life is full and the outside of our life is full and the inside of you is identical with the outside of you and the inside of me is identical with the outside of me. And suddenly we're whole people in a broken world and we have marriages that are on fire for God. Charles Spurgeon said, an angel should be able to visit into a home of Christian people and that angel should feel right at home. Isn't that it? Place yourself under. You're spirit filled. You're able to do it. And place yourself under. Give, give your husband everything that's feminine. He needs everything that's feminine. And then you become all God intended you to be, wives. Men, place yourself under your wife. Give to her everything that is masculine. And then, guess what? God will make her into that person that he intends for her to become. He does the changing. He's the only one that does the changing. We can't cover it up. We can't fix ourselves. We certainly can't fix anybody else. God does it. God does it. And this revolutionizes marriage. How do you sum it up? Well, I want everybody here to become a glass octopus. Hmm. I want you, I want to become a glass octopus. You know, well, that's great. Now, if you know anything about octopuses, by the way, that's the right, that's the first pronunciation of the blue, octopuses. It can be octopi, I guess, you know, but octopuses. If you, octopuses generally stay at the bottom of the sea. They're dark. They camouflage themselves because they're leading uh, they're, they're food for sharks. So they, they, and they had octopuses. They have those eyes that almost go 360 degrees where they can defend themselves. And they know how to hide and get out of the way of those sharks and other, other fish that would prey on them. That's the typical octopus. But there is a glass octopus. That's a different species. You, you, you rarely see them. They're almost never photographed because they're virtually translucent. And the glass octopus, they stay at the surface of the ocean and their eyes are tubular. Their eyes are little rectangles. They have virtually no peripheral vision. And their eyes look up into the light. And when those eyes look up, they could really be in the middle of a school of sharks and not be seen and be totally safe because they're always looking up into the light. Did you get it? If you and I will look up to God and look up to the light and allow him, Jesus Christ, to come and be Lord and Savior of our lives because he placed himself under us on the cross and we placed ourselves under him within the church. And then what happens? We're available to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And then I can place myself under my wife and you can place yourself under your husband. We can place ourselves under the children and suddenly there is not a curse-full home. There is a spirit-full home and God then will change everything. 
What did the preacher preach about on Sunday? Well, he told us to be glass octopuses. <laughs> Do you get it? You got it? Live it out. It works every time. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.